everyone, and welcome to the broadcast. We are not going to pretend that these are easy times in our country and maybe even in your life. We are aware that the economy is coming to a screeching halt. We know that people may be trying to figure out how to pay their bills, and um, there's a, just a lot in the balance. And, and money is important because it comes sometimes keep, just kind of keeps life going. We know that you may have loved ones, people you work with, people you care about that are battling the coronavirus. And we want you to know we are thinking about them. We are praying for them. And we are hoping and praying for the best in this situation, not only in our country and our world, so that we can get back to the lives that we were created for. We know that this is difficult. We know that this is tough. But we hope to bring a little levity right here in this time. Um, we're going to do some fun stuff for the next few weeks. We'll talk about here in just a minute. But the thing we're going to pivot to is, you know, it's, it's hard because there's just no sports. It's a, it's a great reminder that sports are an outlet for the busy things in our lives. The, the things that are, it's kind of a breakaway from the substantive things in our lives, things that give us stress, things that uh, give us, that challenge us. You know, if we think a fourth quarter game in the Big 12 is stressful, imagine losing your job. I know some of you are trying to make decisions about employees and maybe you got a loved one with health issues. Uh, sports has always been a great outlet out for that. I've always said, TCU football is the most important thing in my life on the list of things that are not important. So we know that sports kind of are an odd thing to, to dive into during this difficult time, but we're going to dig into it nonetheless. Um, Jeremy, I got you here with me tonight. Uh, man, here on this episode of the Frogcast, what, how have you been handling the fact that there's no sports right now? We're looking at weeks right now that we've already been dealing with it. We should be looking at our busted brackets right now. But as it is, we have no outlet for sports. How are you handling that? Well, March Madness was always fun. You always want to watch the tournament, and it's fun to root on the underdog Cinderella story. Those those come to the forefront. And for me, this is camp season, and I think last weekend the first Under Armour camp was going to be up here, and it's always fun to get out to those, see the recruits TCU's going after, talking to them. And uh, it, it's kind of a change. I was supposed to be in Houston today for another camp. That was obviously canceled. And it, we're just trying to trying to get on. I mean, it's, it, you know, for all of us in the sports writing industry, we've kind of had to get creative a little bit. We're reaching out for my, myself personally. I'm reaching out to recruits. I'll have a story on Eli Williams on Monday. Um, I'm, I'm going to do a weekly feature catching up with old frogs. Uh, last week I did one with Kenny Kane and, and hopefully everyone enjoys that. And as we move forward, gets to uh, like those a little bit more, but man, it's, it's not easy. It's uh when your uh, life depends on writing stories and is follower recruiting is a, a plus to it because you could always reach out to kids. But when you have sports to write about as far as baseball and, and basketball and, and, and things of that nature, you really want to get out there and, and, and do those things. But when you can't, uh, it, it's kind of, it's kind of a downfall, but more, you know, most importantly is, is fans, you know, some of those, some of those games you get to watch, it takes you away from whatever you're thinking about. And, and put you in a good mood for whatever it is, two to three hours, you know, wh however long it takes you to sit down in front of the TV and watch sports, golf, basketball, baseball, anything. And, uh, you know, like you said earlier, it's, it's one of those things, your heart goes out to those folks that are infected by it, but hopefully we get past it and everything gets back to normal in a few months, hopefully in a few weeks. Hey, I'd take a few weeks. That sounds great to me. You know, one of the things that has obviously been impacted by our lack of sports is um, there's no spring football practice. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're the kind of person that wants an update on spring practice. You want Jeremy with binoculars trying to figure out who's calling plays from spring practice. But 
Obviously, all NCAA activities are canceled between now and the end of the academic year, which is the end of June. No spring practice. Jeremy, how are they going to, or maybe how do you think they should reinstate? Because these are critical practices to get young players more reps, quarterback and receiver to get reps and feel like they know how to be in sync, offensive line, learning how to work together. It's at a deficit for, man, if you're just not rolling out more five stars like Alabama and Clemson, this puts developmental teams like TCU at a deficit. What do you think the NCAA should do to, to give teams a chance to, to get out there and give coaches a chance to evaluate and players a chance to improve? Well, obviously, you're going to have to do something it's, it, from a recruiting perspective. You're going to have to change the calendar a, li- a little bit. You're going to have to uh, get rid of one of the dead period months and, and make that a, a recruiting month to where uh, July right now, um, from June 22nd through, uh, I believe, July 17th is basically a dead period. I may be wrong on those dates, but I know it's late June through uh, the middle of July. Right now, it's a dead period, and that means you can't go out and uh, have recruits on campus. You can't visit with them. You could text, you know, talk to them, whatever. You just can't have uh, person-to-person visits. So, in other words, you can't have kids come in. I think, obviously, they need to make that a uh, open period now to where kids can come back and, or, or at least come in for official visits, unofficial visits, camps, uh, anything in that nature, because – the spring evaluation period, I mean, you're not only looking at, as far as this class is concerned, the 21, uh, 2021 class, you're looking at 2022s, you're looking at even at 2023s, and you're kind of getting a head start when these coaches are going to different schools. But I feel for the most part, you, the NCAA has to look at uh, changing that calendar. And, and from a practice perspective, either you have to let the spring camp go beyond uh, May, uh, maybe into June, or you let teams put at least 10 practices at the beginning of fall camp, or at least let them do two-a-days, because um, right now you're not supposed to do two-a-days. And that's one of the things, talking with some high school coaches that are missing out on spring ball that hopefully the UIL will, will allow them to do. Uh, the bigger schools, the 6A through uh, 4A D1 schools right now, they have spring ball and they only get to practice one time a day during fall camp. Well, now a lot of coaches are wanting to see if they can go back to two a day since they're not obviously going to have a chance to do spring ball. But I think the NCAA definitely has to look at either letting teams programs start fall camp earlier. I know TCU usually starts around July 31st, August 1st. I think moving it up to at least July 15th at least gives them a chance to uh, get back some of the practices they've lost. Yeah, I think moving camp back to be able to start it maybe a month early, two weeks early might might go a long way. It also um, it's going to put a dent. What I'm curious of what it's going to do is summer camps on campus for TCU. Right. Because I know that's such a showcase moment. You know, we, we talk about Foster coming down and running the 40 and getting the scholarship offer after he would hit sprinted 30 of the 40 yards. And so there's clearly some evaluations and offers that are going out at those camps. Those are invaluable to a program like TCU. So I'll really be interested to see how they recalibrate that. Somebody's going to take a hit. And, you know, like you're just not going to be able to make it whole. It's almost like the economy. You can, you can shore it up to the best of your ability, but somebody's going to take a dip in this. And I'll be interested to see how TCU comes out on the other side of it. Kind of the kids I feel sorry, the, the, feel the most sorry for right now, Jeff, is the early enrollees because essentially they enrolled early basically for nothing because you're enrolling early so you can get uh, part of taking classes, becoming a college student, 
uh, I'm talking more generally about the high school guys that graduated high school early and get to college early. Uh, and they're practicing, they're getting acclimated to being around a, a football team, being around the, their coaches, their teammates, everything else. And what they got maybe four or five practices before they TCU players went off for spring break. And then they haven't been able to practice. So it's, it's really, if you're an early enrollee, you're kind of like, man, I could have stayed in high school and not had to worry about coming to college so early because really it's not affecting what I'm able to do. I'm not going to make an impact to the coaching staff. I'm not going to be able to get bigger and get stronger. Uh, it's, it's just, a it's just a, a bad thing for them as well. Uh, just coming in early and not being able to get out there and compete. I saw Ken Seals the other day. He's already back back in town because Vanderbilt, they they shut down classes completely all the way through the end of the year, and they're doing everything online, and they've already sent their football team back. So they're not even going to practice, do anything. And for a kid like him, he's number one on the depth chart. He's getting a clear advantage over the other quarterbacks that, weren't going to be on campus until June, but now he really doesn't have a heads up. He may still have a little heads up on the competition, but that's just one example of some of these guys that go to college early and now they're not getting a chance to really make an impact. And for, for everyone that's followed recruiting, that's why we know these kids graduate early so they can get an impact make an impact and, and make an impression on the coaching staff early on. Well, not only is spring practice canceled, we obviously know all spring athletics have been canceled. The Frog baseball team, which I thought was off to a great start, has obviously had the season suspended. There's not going to be any reinstatement, um, even if all this went away tomorrow, which it's not. Um, they're not going to pick the, football, the baseball season back up. What do you think the NCAA should do for spring athletes? So if you're a senior and you've you, you got 10 games under your belt this spring, do you what do you think the NCAA should do with those athletes? They – I, you know, I see a senior in basketball that, that had their season truncated conference championship weekend. I get that they're not going to get another year. What do you think they should do with baseball and, and softball and, and some of these other spring sports where that guy was probably man, gearing up for that senior year? And, and what about granting another year of eligibility to kids that, that lost an entire year of eligibility just because of something completely out of their control? Yeah, I, I think for cases like that where they've lost complete eligibility – I think they should be granted another year as seniors, or at least be given the opportunity. If you want to come back to school, here's your opportunity. And with doing that, the NCAA is going to have to allow for more scholarships just for this one period. But I was talking to a coach the other day, not a TCU coach or anything, but he made a pretty good point that the people that might not like this rule the most are the juniors. Because what do you say about the juniors that – are playing behind the seniors and next year was going to be their opportunity, but the guy gets to come back and guess what? The junior is going to be a senior now, maybe. And uh, unless they get, unless the NCAA makes a rule to where they get to red shirt, they don't have to use any of their eligibility. So it's not just the seniors that get affected. It's really all the way down to the freshmen and, and really the guys that it would impact the most right now would be the juniors, even in, in any, in any sport right now. Yeah, I never thought about that. I mean, I think I think the seniors should absolutely get another year, but then everybody underneath them. I mean, I, there's a strong argument to be made that you you should be able to get have another year of eligibility granted to you. Now, I know that's going to mess with scholarships, and some some kid maybe 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 they truncate scholarships. Maybe they expand it by three, and then some kid that's a junior gets that's not starting shown the door. 
because yeah. they got to make room. And you don't you don't want to be in that spot either. It's it's really no win. The whole thing's no win. But I'll be interested to see how all that plays out because that's there's a lot of variables there that people don't think of. Exactly right, and and that's why I think they haven't made a decision on that because there's so many variables. It's it's easy for us to look at it the the way the climate is right now, and and you feel so bad for those seniors, especially the the girls basketball. You would hope that they would have a chance to go and and play in that tournament, but you it, it's not just it's not just the seniors that would be affected by it because you have underclassmen like the coach was telling me what what do you say about that junior that's playing behind a senior he was going to be playing he or she was going to be playing behind a senior this year and then that senior comes back and that junior doesn't get another year of eligibility and they have to move up to be a senior so basically they're still not playing and now they're a senior if there's been a different interpretation of how the rules going to be played out then i would like to see it but i haven't i haven't heard anything i'm just I'm, I just thought it was an interesting perspective coming from a coach that I hadn't thought about before um, that was really, really interesting to me. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences of that. And knowing the NCAA, they're going to screw it up. So, yep, uh, that, that much we know. Well, you know, we've got weeks on end of Frogcast content that we're going to fill with no Frog teams playing. So I was uh, I was on the freeway the other day, gave our own Jeremy Clark a call, and I was like, you know what, let's get creative. And so what we're going to kick off with tonight, and we're going to roll with this for several weeks, hopefully we'll have something to talk about in sports down the road, live sports, real sports, but we're going to do a little bit of a throwback um, conversation for the next several weeks. This is going to be a debate, give us a chance to really break down and compare and contrast TCU teams that are comparable. We are going to kick off. This debate, this new series that is here for the foreseeable future or until we run out of Gary Patterson teams, of, of, set, of pitting teams against each other. I pick one team, Jeremy takes the other team, and we both share five points why our team is better than the other team that we're comparing it to. And we figured we'd start at the top. So tonight we are going to debate what team was better, TCU 2010 that won the Rose Bowl and finished number two in the country, or TCU 2014 that won the Peach Bowl and finished number three in the country. Of course, one of the great ongoing debates was, could the TCU 2014 team win the college football playoff that they would have gotten in? And if there had been a college football playoff in 2014 and 2010, would TCU have gotten in and could they have won? I don't think they would have gotten in because you look at what they how they treat teams like UCF and things like that. But could they have won if they've gotten in? I think every Frog fan knows the answer to both of those questions. But Jeremy and I are going to have at it tonight. I'm going to take one point. He's going to take another. We're going to bounce back and forth and go between 2010 that I'll take, Rose Bowl champions, 2014 that Jeremy takes, Peach Bowl champions. Clark, you up for a debate? Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. I guess so. Go ahead. All right. Here we go. I'm going to All kick right. it off. I'm going to kick it off. I'll have my point ready. You can rebut it all you want, and then you take your point, and we'll go through our five and call it a show. All right, the number the, the number one point, the number one reason that the 2010 team is better than the 2014 team is that 2010 defense would never in a million years give up 61 points in Waco. Never in a million years is that 19 is that 2010 team going to give up 61 points to uh, any team, let alone Baylor. And so when I look back on that defense, and we're going to break down that defense as I go down my list. The defense 
is what carried that team to the Rose Bowl championship. I know we remember guys like Andy Dalton and Jeremy Curley and Josh Boyce and Ed Wesley, but the 2010 team was maybe the grittiest defense that TCU put on the on the field. And I know some people are going to say 20, 2009, some are going to say 2008. I get all that. 2009 or 2010, then you had to go undefeated and win their bowl game. So I'm going to go ahead and make my first point that the 2010 defense was better than the 2014 defense, not the least of which they never, ever were going to give up 61 points. The, the most points they gave up all season was 35 points to a good San Diego State team, coached by then up-and-comer Brady Hoke, who a team that went 9-4 and four and, and won their bowl game and had a, had, a, had a really solid season, and the most points they gave up was 35 TCU, 2010, not giving up 61 points, better defense than 2014. What say you, Jeremy? Pastor Jeff, it's like you're, it's like you're speaking to my heart here. I mean, it's <laughs> – how am I supposed to compete with the pastor here? I mean, every Sunday you're convincing people to listen to you. Everyone's going to listen to you. Hey, that 2010 team, that, that team holds a special place in my heart because that was really the – 2005 was my officially first my officially first year, but 2006 I really hit the ground running even even more, and and I and I got a pretty good relationship with a lot of those kids. So 2006 class uh, or the 2006 recruiting class was the Rose Bowl champs um, in 2010. So they had a very good year. But I will say, as good as that defense was for TCU in 2010, I don't know if they could keep up offensively with what TCU was able to do in 2014. You have Trevon Boykin. You have arguably, uh, no matter what he's done off the field, if we could all agree that when he was on the field, he was one of the top players TCU's ever had. I mean, the guy could throw it. The guy could run it. He had a great receiver in Josh Doxson. The, the defense wasn't great, but they weren't horrible. They gave up that 61 points to a team at the time that was number five in the country. So it's not like they just gave up 61 points to a nobody. They did give up 61 points, but they also scored 58 points. And not let's not forget, they scored 82 points against Texas Tech. That's got to have a point in someone's book. I mean, you score 82 against Texas Tech, a hated rival. I mean, that come on, man, 82 points. The best win ever for that, that team that year was when they played Ole Miss in the bowl game, everyone looks at Ole Miss and, and thinks they didn't want to be there. They weren't really good that year. Has anyone really looked at what Ole Miss was in 2014? They started off the year 7-0. and They beat Alabama. They lost a very narrow game to LSU on the road by three points. They lost to uh, a top-five Auburn team by four points. They beat number four Mississippi State – just weeks before they lost to TCU in the bowl game. And not only did they lose, they got absolutely hammered. And after that game, everyone knew that even though Ohio State got into the playoff, everyone knew that TCU should have been in the playoffs. All right. I won't I won't disagree with much of that. Um, I won't disagree with one of, much of that. You know, it's six years later, so I can make this quote um, from Jeff Ketchum, who I cannot stand. But um, he had a great quote from that uh, when when Ole Miss lost to Auburn. Remember, they that I think it was Treadwell that fumbled on the one oh, yeah, and, yeah. and, and had a, a terrible injury. I felt bad for the kid. Ketchum tweets, 
this is the saddest day in Mississippi since LBJ signed the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, that was that was that was horrible. That was horrible. But that being said, uh, might be a little true to it. But that that being said, uh, that team was amazing. I mean, that 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 2014 Ole Miss team was amazing. There's there's no debating that, and they did beat Alabama, who Alabama made the playoffs that year. So, all right, well, maybe we we fought to a draw on that one. All right, what do you want to fire off with next, Clark? 2014. Not only did they have Trevon Boykin, they had the best receiver ever to put on a frog uniform, and Josh Dotson. Name me another receiver that put up the numbers like him that was so clutch in big-time moments. You didn't have all the me, me, me. You didn't have I want the ball, this and that. All that guy did was go out, run routes. Boykin threw the ball up to him. He'd I heard him. that. I just want to acknowledge I heard that. <laughs> so, listen, if as, as good as the 2010 defense was for TCU, no offense, guys, but I don't think there's anyone on that defense that's that's able to cover Josh, and the and the way he performed in 2014. You know, I don't. I'm going to go ahead and say that 2014 Josh Dotson. We project back 2015 Josh Dotson, and, and you know, I know that Josh had a great Peach Bowl, and I know as the year went on, he got stronger. You know, we remember that great catch against um, uh, Minnesota early in the season. But I think sometimes we, we kind of push backwards and have a revisionist history on 2014 Josh Dotson, who was great. Now, I'm not I'm not debating that. 2015 Josh Dotson, which we're going to talk about that team next week. I think 2015 Josh Dotson was much better than 2014. So I, I'm not going to disagree with you on 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 the on the power and the potency of that offense. But Josh Dotson is uh, he's the best wide receiver in TCU history. There's there, you're not going to get much pushback from me on that one. Although, uh, now we'll get to that in a second, but the 2014 uh, Josh Dotson, solid, top of the line. All right, I'm going to make my case here about uh, 2010 TCU. Now, you've already referenced this, and I'm going to break the rule I just said, which is revisionist history, but that's okay. I'm the moderator, so I can can do what I want, man. Uh, Andy Dalton is an NFL quarterback. Andy Dalton was a three-and-three-quarters-year starter. Andy Dalton won and won and won. All that guy did was win. And so if you look at um, what Andy Dalton was able to do with that 2010 team, he did not have the Cadillac arm or the legs that Trevon Boykin did, but he had good legs. And you go back to that Rose Bowl game on January 1st, 2011 against Wisconsin. He was the leading rusher in that game. And Justin Fuente... I think smartly built a game plan around their ability to run with Andy Dalton. And so I'm going to make the hot sports opinion right here. Andy Dalton was a better quarterback than Trevon Boykin for two reasons. One, he won the Rose Bowl and he put the team to number two in the country. And the second thing is he was not a knucklehead. Now I know that this is revisionist history and uh, some of you all may have heard the rumors about Trevon and this and that. And <laughs> the rumors. The rumors. You, you heard the rumors about Trevon Boykin. Uh, maybe he's not quoting scripture the way that Andy Dalton is when he wins the Rose Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stake my claim on Andy Dalton one because he's a good guy and two because he won. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna give him credit for that. So I'm oh, gonna yeah. yeah I'm gonna make my claim on that one. 
Well, did did you ever did you ever see Brady Hoke high five Andy Dalton after a good run? No, but I've never seen uh, Brady Hoke paint, playing uh, hitting on seventeen at a blackjack table at four in the morning. <laughs> okay, go for your third point. <laughs> I'm like uh, uh, one, one coach that, that that may fit that category that <laughs> now lives in, in East Houston, so he can get to Louisiana quicker. <laughs> oh man! Oh no! No, I've ne- I never saw uh, Brady Hoke or or Dana Holgerson or uh, uh, Burt Bielema <laughs> give Andy Dalton a high five on the sideline. But again, that's 25 Boykin. That's I mean that's that's 15 Boykin. That's 2015 yeah. Boykin. So. So that's, my, that, that's the number two reason that I think the 2010 team is better than 20, uh, 2014 because I, I'm, I'm putting my flag on the ground for Andy Dalton to put the team on his back for four years and got them to what swung the gate open for them to get into the Big 12 and for them to be able to, 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 be able to fight for those Big 12 titles and be in the national championship discussion. I can agree with that. All right, bring it back. What's your, what's your second? My second point, I already thought I had a – that was my – Josh was my second point. Oh, Josh was your second point. Oh, I often yeah, – you're, 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 you're on the floor now. All right, I'm on the floor then. Okay. Yeah, you're, All right, you're, I got my number three then. All right, here's yeah. my hot, hot sports opinion on number three, why 2010 is better than 2014. The 2010 linebacking crew is better than the 2014 linebacking crew. Now let's do a little revisionist history here. Tanner Brock – before he busts his foot up in the 2011 Baylor game, and before he made a visit to the Tarrant County Popo, he was an amazing linebacker. And you go back and watch what Tank Carter did, especially in that 2010 season. Tank Carter was a machine at linebacker. He was a man among boys. He was on that BMX bike knocking down Scott Tolzien and anybody else in the Mountain West that was in his way. And so I know that Paul Dawson, Marcus Mallett, even Jonathan Anderson, that's a great linebacking crew, but I don't think anything has compared before then or since then with Tanner Brock and and Tank Carter. I think we've had some individual performances that stand out. I think Garrett Wallow has a great senior year, and he can be in this discussion. But the best linebacking crew that TCU ever put on the field, Tanner Brock, Tank Carter, I know I am going to get annihilated for this online with uh, dropping Hawthorne out of the conversation for previous oh. teams. I know, I know I am. But this is my show, so you could just deal with this. So I'm going to go with um, 2010 is better than 2014 because the strength of that linebacking core is like nothing that we'd ever seen. And a lot of it gets washed out because Tank was injured his senior year in 2011, didn't play at full strength. And also Tanner Brock obviously had some issues that were injury and some off-field stuff. I know he's put his life together, got good for him. But 2010 linebacking crew, second to none. Well, I'm going to see your linebacker crew. I'm going to raise you a safety crew that featured Chris Hackett, Sam Carter, and tell me a, a, a better safety group that TCU's had. Uh, they have the potential. Trayvon and Ardarius have the potential, and they may very well go down as the top safety duo in, in TCU history. But I'm going to tell you right now, Chris Hackett, he didn't, he didn't play in the NFL, but – Find me a guy that was better at ball awareness than that guy. He just had a nose for the football. He was able to make plays on defense. He saved them in that Kansas game, which I hope you don't bring that up, by the way. Uh, Derek Kindred. Oh, that's my I mean, that's my fourth point, by the way. 
<laughs> okay. Well, Derek Kindred and Kevin White, and you had a redshirt freshman, Anthony Tejada, and they're playing in the Big 12, and they're playing against some highly vaunted offenses, and they're doing great a great job uh, in, in many of those games. They're, they're shutting down opponents, and just name me a safety group that, that you think is better. Uh, and again, Trayvon and Ardarius are well on their way to being very, very good safeties, but I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, a group that was as good as Chris and, and Sam and, and Derek that year. Yeah, that is a salty group. You're not going to get much pushback from me. I want to make a note of one of those plays that goes without referencing, unless you watch the the tape over and over and over, which we all have a lot of time to do right now. Go back to the 2014 TCU-OU game. On third down, on the play before Marcus Mallett stuffs Samaj P. Ryan on fourth down. You remember the fourth down stuff. Trevor Knight runs his own read, and he uh, pulls it and is coming to the left side. Ranthony Tejada, they motioned him over. And if I remember right, he was smart enough to pick it up in the motion and stopped. Came over with that speed as a redshirt freshman and sticks Trevor Knight and prevents him from getting a first down that sets up that fourth down stuff. That play right there won the game. That play right there won the game. And so you're talking about the secondary, the strength of the secondary on the 2014 team. It's really hard to argue with that because, you know, there's moments like that. And your name we haven't mentioned yet is Kevin White. I uh, mentioned him. Kevin okay. White. Was what, yeah. Yeah. I, Kevin I, White I and really Brandon playing off of each other. Go back and watch the Peach Bowl with Kevin White. I, I think he was – I think he's an unheralded player from that from that whole era. Um, I, don't, I don't think Kevin White gets enough praise, so – but Ray Anthony in 2014, that play against OU, go back and watch that game. That is a heck of a stop. So you you may have an argument from me there. I'm, I might I might concede a little bit. Yeah. Is this is this going to be my fourth point now? Yeah. Give us your fourth point. I'm all ears, Clark. Well, I'm going to have to go out and say, as much as this stinks to say, and I'm going to get some guys that are going to be former players telling me to, you know, go to wherever. 2010 did not play the schedule 2014 did. I will tell you right now, do you know off the top of your head, do you know off the top of your head how many top 25 teams TCU beat that year? Two. You would be wrong. because they, They beat number four Oklahoma. They beat number 15. Oh, I, I was thinking of my team. I was thinking of 2010. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. I'm, I'm naming off 2014, but you did me some you, – you helped me on 2010 now. Okay. Uh, they, they beat number 20, West Virginia. They beat number seven, Kansas State, which is the infamous Trevon Boykin front flip into the end zone game. And they beat number nine, even though everyone doesn't want to give them credit. Ole Miss was ranked number nine when they beat them 42-3 to in the Peach Bowl. So – I would tell you right now, 2014, much as I love those 2010 guys, Lord knows I love them, 2014 boys played a much tougher schedule. I was wrong as well. I forgot Oregon State was ranked number 24 in um, at the beginning of the season, but they finished with a losing record, so they don't get a lot of credit for that. So they beat number six, Utah, which is a big win, yep. and then they beat number five, Wisconsin, in the Rose Bowl. So, so are you telling me – that all of those years that we were slamming the table, 08, 09, 2010, 2011, that, hey, winning the Mountain West is a big deal. 
And all of those Texas Tech fans that say, you don't understand what it's like to play week in and week out in the Big 12. Are you saying that they were right? I will never admit that those guys were right, but I'm just saying as far as the scheduling goes and how many ranked teams they beat and and the fact some of the teams that they did beat um, was – I will say that that win over number six Utah was a great win. But the, the win that TCU had over Kansas State late in the year kept their – Playoff hopes alive. I mean, Kansas State was good that year. I mean, I mean, they they were ranked number seven when they came into Amon Carter, and not to mention, a lot of people after TCU escapes Lawrence, barely beats Kansas. Everyone's starting to whisper, "Watch out for Texas." Texas has been playing good lately. They can end TCU season. They can ruin all their playoff hopes. TCU goes down there and beats Texas like a drum. Beats them forty-eight to ten, and the twenty ten team I don't think could have done that. You know, one of the things we forget about that Kansas State team is they should have beaten Auburn at the beginning of the season. They played them. Um, I think they lost by a touchdown early in the season. If they'd have beaten them, which they should have, that would have changed the whole narrative for the Big Twelve, the SEC, and, and, and a whole lot of things. So. That would have been K-State's first loss of the year, and, and they would have been ranked ahead of TC. They might have been ranked number three. They would have been the highest-ranked team in the Big 12, and to blow the doors off of them at home would have, would have been uh, a great asset. Thanks a lot, Bill Snyder. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Bill Snyder. All right, I, you already stole my point. Uh, my number four that I have is the Frogs should have lost at Kansas that year. <laughs> I know. Clint Bowen, interim coach, 2014 – they should have lost to Kansas. That was heartbreaking. We talk about the stress that sports makes. We were talking about that at the beginning of the podcast. That was maybe the most stressful game I've ever watched and been more embarrassed that we won the game. Was it Cam Eccles-Looper that run that ran that punt back in order to win that game? We had no business winning that game. There were fumbles all over the place. That was maybe the worst Kansas team, which is – like being the best truck stop sushi in Alabama. I mean, like, it's just, there's nothing to be proud of with that. That's a terrible, terrible Kansas team. And the t- a team that says we should have played for the national title barely escaped Lawrence with a win against an awful, and I mean awful team. So I'm going to put my stake in the ground on the fact that Frogs in 2010, they beat San Diego State 40-35, but that was a bowl team at least. It wasn't a team that would have come in last in the MAC West. So, I don't think we have any points to refute on that, but the Frogs should have lost to Kansas at home that year. And it's hard to say you should be national champions when you lose, when you almost lose to Kansas. You had an interim coach in there in Clint Bowen that the players were playing hard for to try to get him the head coaching position. They wanted Clint Bowen as their head coach. And when you have a fire lit under those guys, you have a number four team coming in to the, into your stadium you're going to play beyond belief. I mean, for crying out loud, we watched TCU beat Baylor this year uh, in basketball. Things happen that crazy. Kansas, didn't they beat Texas the next year? So it's not like they were just horrible. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Texas lost to Kansas, right? Yeah. But we lost to them the next year, so there's not much we can say about that. (laughs) I understand that. That That was a crazy game. It was cold beyond belief. Uh I don't think the Texas boys are ready for it. Kansas guys were running around in pregame with no shirts on and 
I, I think I even mentioned to Jeremiah that they might be in trouble. And believe it or not, I don't know if you remember this game, but Trevon threw a pick six in that game. And Kansas, I think, went up by two scores. But they found out there was 12 men on the field. And so that pick six got taken away. 12 men on the field for for Kansas' defense. And somehow or another, Trevon Boykin pulls pulls a rabbit out of his hat and leads him to a victory. But Chris Hackett had a huge play in that game, had an inter- interception late in the game uh, to seal that win. But I, I can't refute it. You, if, you're a, if you're a good team, you shouldn't be playing games like that. But you got to remember, you have a bullseye on your back, and they got tested, but great teams – do good against good test, uh, you know those test situations like that, and they came away with the win. They didn't lose. Still a W next to their uh, next to their name. You know, I'll tell you if the if Kansas played hard for their interim coach that they loved, I would remind you that South Korea played really hard for their coach against the Blue <laughs> Team in '92, and Magic and Jordan and Bird still found a way to win that game by forty. So that 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 would be my rebuttal <laughs> of that game. So, all right, give me you got give me your last point here, Jeremy. You're you're up. I'm I'm up. Okay, I'm yeah, up. You're five. All right. all right, my five. I want to plant. Uh, I'm, I want to. I want to get. I'm going to give a good word for a kid that was in my youth group at Community Christian Church in Alito, Texas, way back in the day. The biggest punter in NCAA history, Anson Kelton. Anson Kelton not only knows how to punt the ball, he was a heck of a tackler on the block, on the on the punt team. And so there were more than one occasions where some poor guy thought he was going to break it, and he got hammered by Hanson Kelton. So I, I'm going to go ahead and say that 2010 was better than 2014 on one side of special teams kicking, which is punt, because look at all those punts he pinned inside of the 10 against Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl. Anson Kelton was a heck of a punter. But you know who was not much of a kicker? Ross Evans. And so I will concede the point that Jaden Overcrow is a better field goal kicker than Ross Evans. But I think Anson Kelton, wait for it, outweighs Jaden Overcrow in terms of quality <laughs> contribution to the team. You're drinking your bourbon tonight, and you led me to my fifth point. And I was, I was using this. I was using this fifth point on purpose because I was waiting for it because this is a perfect opportunity. I'm all here for Jaden Obercrome to come in and kick this game winning field goal in the debate of 2014 and 2010. There is no better kicker, in my opinion, than Jaden Obercrome. The guy had ice in his veins. They go on the road to play West Virginia. It's 30 to 28, and TCU needs a kick. To win the game, what's Jaden Obercrome come in and do? Right down the middle, baby. Right down the middle, 31-20. The guy was so clutch throughout his career. If you're telling me with an honest face and you're looking me in the eye and you tell me if it's 17-17 to and the 2014 team has got it to at least the 35-yard line, which sets up a 52-yard field goal from Obercrome, does Obercrome make that kick, Jeff? Yes, he does. He does. And that's the difference in these games. These does Ross Evans make that kick? Unfortunately, I like Ross a lot. 
but unfortunately, he doesn't make that kick. There's not a lot of guys. I mean, 2015, Jaden, was even better. I mean, the Oregon game, oof, not even close. I mean, he just he just supplanted himself into to being the greatest kicker in TCU history, in my opinion, um, with that game. But it, it, I think he's the difference maker. When you got two very good teams like this, what's it come down to? Special teams. Anson Kelton was a great point. But if I'm putting points on the board and I need a kicker to go out there, Jaden Obercrum's the guy for the 2014 team that goes out there. He kicks game-winning field goal. TCU wins 20-17, held to the 2014 team. You know, I'm not going to argue with you there, but I'm going to hold Anson Kelton um, to a higher bar. I, th- I just think he's a great kicker. I just think Anson was a great kicker, and he was the biggest kicker in the history of the NCAA. <laughs> The dude never missed a meal. He was a good kid in Bible study. I mean, I don't know anything about Jaden Crone. I mean, Jaden Obercrome, how he behaved in Bible study. But I know Anson was there. He listened to my sermon. He's a good guy. I will tell you this: Jaden has the power to make kids forget their names. Because when I took my, uh, Brody, my son, and one of his friends to meet the frogs one time, we were in the in the line to get the player autographs, and I was talking to Jaden and. Jaden looks at Brody. He says, what's your name? And Brody couldn't say a word. He, he Brody wasn't expecting to have a player talk to him. And so Brody was starstruck. And I'm, I'm not sure if Anson would, ever had that ability, but I heard Anson doesn't look anything like he used to. I'm friends with him on Facebook. I can attest that he is he is no longer the gigantic punter that you're referencing, Jeff. He is, he is pretty much 6'4", looks about 200 pounds now. He's, he's nowhere close to what he played at. At, at uh, TCU now, and he's I, a fire. Yeah, he's a fire. I want to. I want to tell a story. Uh, in the statute of limitations have already expired on all of this, so I want to tell a story real quick. Those of you that follow recruiting, if you're 41 minutes into this show, you're going to love it. I did Anson Kelton's grandpa's funeral. Orville Neal played on the Cotton Bowl team that beat Syracuse. Uh, 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 Tito Martinez blocked the kick to beat Syracuse in that game. They played Jim Brown, shut him down. Orville Neal was a letterman on that team, huge guy, one of the biggest guys that played in the Southwest Conference in that era. And um, even when he was passing away and um, his body was shutting down, he was a huge man. Orville was a huge man. In the waiting room to come see him, I met several men that were very invested in the success of student athletes at TCU in the 80s. I'm just going to put it that way. I met several men that had a very vested and invested interest in the Horn Frogs in the 80s. So I will I will just leave it at that. And and I, I did not meet Dick Lowe. So uh, Orville uh, 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 Anson came from a long line of Horn Frog fans and, and family and friends. So I just thought I'd, I thought I'd, I'd put that out there. So. If you like recruiting, you'll love that story. I like it. I like it. Don't don't tell Mark Cohen I said that, but that's a great story. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the uh, I'm gonna give you uh, I'm gonna go ahead and concede Jade Novacrum on that. All right, Daniel, wake up. We need you to break the tie on this. You got to pick one. Is it 2014 or is it 2010? Which is the better team? Both of you guys have really good arguments. It's really tough. I've got to say the 2014 team. Yay. 
You know, 2010 team beat Baylor, Daniel. I just think I'd re- I thought I'd remind you of that. That's a good point. It is a great point. But uh No, got to stick with my with my gut there. All right, we'll stick with your gut. All right. So, 2014 beats 2010 according to Daniel Southern, the great arbitrator of truth in our culture public philosopher, um, public theologian, Daniel Southern. So 2014 over 2010. Daniel, wasn't he the good job Big 12 guy? That year? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That can neither be confirmed nor denied. It kind of looks like you. Good job, Big 12. Good job, Big 12. Good job, Big 12. Like, I'm going to stand there and harass Baylor as they walk up the field. No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. Maybe. You know, I can never decide whether I'm proud or embarrassed of that video. I kind of go back and forth. Well, you know, what's-his-face, Kaz, is over there at SMU now, so if TCU beats SMU, someone can say, good job, All-American Conference, whatever. whatever. What's their conference, AAC? American Athletic Conference. Good job, American. Good job, American. Good job, AAC. Good job, AAC. See, see if they can get him riled up again. That would be great. The best part of that video was Kaz losing his losing his biscuits. Oh yeah, he lost them. He lost them big sure. time. Yep. This is going to be great debate, man. This was this was fun because bo- both these teams were incredible. I mean, if you if you just look at what that 2010 team did as far as the rankings and everything else was concerned, Andy was like a three star. Uh, Jeremy Curley was really the the big time prospect of that era. He was the Really, I think Jeremy was like really the first four star I ever remember them getting. He was um, out of Lugerville, right? Four star uh, Hutto. Hutto Hippos. Oh, that's right. That's right. Hutto. Hutto. My bad. And, my bad. and then Bart Johnson. I mean, Bart, I always thought Bart was a really good high school player, and I could not believe that he didn't have offers from SMU or North Texas and all these other schools. And he probably would have. It dude was so stinking smart. He got an academic scholarship to. TCU and obviously I knew when they got him on academic scholarship, he was going to be a great football player because dude was really good in high school. And they really, they, they basically got an extra scholarship out of that whole deal. It was uh, pretty neat how that worked out, but they had some really good players. Marcus Cannon. I mean, the offensive line for TCU, Ed Wesley, Wayman James, obviously Andy tank Carter, tank Carter was one of the favorite guys to talk about, but 2014, same way, man, 2014 had a, really underrated class. And if you look at it, it's kind of crazy because the 2014 team is basically, they were all in high school when that, that 2010 team was good in the Rose bowl. So you got to think that there's some kind of, there's some kind of connection there. Those high school kids probably chose TCU. The 2014 seniors probably chose TCU because of what they did in the Rose bowl in 2010. Yeah, there, if you were a redshirt freshman, no, if you were a freshman that was redshirted in 2010, you played on the 2014 team. So Sam Carter was on the Rose Bowl team. Um, there was somebody else on offense that contributed that year that was on the Rose Bowl team. I think Coach Patterson, I remember him rattling that off at a press conference one once. There were a handful of people that redshirted in 2010 and then obviously were big contributors in 2014. 
four teams. Let's just rattle off a couple of names that we've that we missed that I think are worth mentioning. Obviously, 2010 team, you talked about Jeremy Curley, Jimmy Young, Josh Boyce, you said Bart Johnson, Ed Wesley. Those are all guys on that 2010 team that I think will do not get the praise that they deserve. Then you go back to that 2014 team, that front four, Davion Pearson, Chucky Hunter, those are guys that really made an impact. We talked about Paul Dawson and Marcus Mallett, and we've already recapped all of the defensive backfield. But there were just a lot of guys on that team that were – I don't even know – I don't want to say TCU wouldn't recruit them now because that's not fair. But those are guys that should have gone to Oklahoma State in 2010, 2011, and TCU was smart enough to get them, develop them, put them on the field, and then they deployed them in such a way that they were able to uh, obviously reach great heights. So shout out to a lot of those guys on both sides of the ball on both of those teams because they're the, really the backbone of what TCU built on going forward. Yes, sir. All right. Well, we will uh, bring this show to an end next week. We are going to break down 2015 versus 2009. 2009 team, obviously they go to the Fiesta Bowl and lose to Boise State. 2015 team, they go to the Alamo Bowl in the comeback, the greatest comeback ever in bowl history. So, Jeremy, you take 2009, I'll take 2015, and we'll break that down next Sunday night. If you haven't yet, we want to encourage you to subscribe to the Frogcast on iTunes and Google Play and all of your podcasting apps. We want more people to know about what's going on here at the Frogcast. And if you haven't yet, now is a good time to subscribe to hornfrogblitz.com. We are proud members of TCU 24-7 Sports. Great way to stay connected to our online community. Jeremy is doing a weekly interview with former players, kind of a where are they now? Not just guys that made it to the NFL, but guys that are you know using their degree and living life and talking about the strength of TCU football to make them into the men that they are now. You're going to find some great articles and some great back and forth on our website right now. Go join hornfrogblitz.com. You can commit. You can be a part of this uh, website. We'd love to have you on our message board. So until we get together next week, for Daniel Southern, for Jeremy Clark, I'm Jeff Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Frogcast.